Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and I am out at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in San Jose, California, where I've been recording a number of shows. Tonight we're going to have a discussion which I think is very important and which has actually come up repeatedly during this conference. It seems to be a theme that spiritual teachers and people on, on the spiritual path are realizing the importance of more and more. And that theme is what we might call embodiment. Another word I think that's somewhat synonymous is integration. And we'll be explaining what that is as we go along. We have an audience here and uh, the audience will be asking questions a little bit later in the presentation. But the, the panel members, and I'm just the moderator, are as follows. To my left, T. Proctor, who is the founder of Being mm -hmm. Real, being embodied. <laughs> he offers private sessions and group work uh, in Humboldt County, California on this theme that we'll be talking about tonight. To his left, Susanna Marie is a spiritual mentor and founder of Transformation Through Presence. She offers private sessions and groups. She is a mother of two teens and lives in Northern California. And to her left, Amodama spiritual teacher and author, offers satsangs, retreats, and private sessions in the UK, Europe, and the United States. She currently lives in the UK. I've interviewed Susanna and Amodama on BatGap, and you can search and find their interviews if you like. And uh, one of these days, maybe even this weekend, I'll interview T as well. T stands for Tyrannosaurus, by the way. His parents were paleontologists. <laughs> I had a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> That's not really true. <laughs> Actually, it's a good story. Yeah, it's a good story. <laughs> Spread that. <laughs> Let me ask you a few questions. We, we brainstormed earlier before the conference and about what we were going to say, and, and we came up with some questions we might want to ask. We, we want to ask you in the beginning to see what you have to say. How many of you would agree that spiritual realization is relevant to everyday life? And how many feel that it has intrinsic value in terms of subjective fulfillment or you know deep experiences but doesn't necessarily apply to raising kids or working at a job or any of that kind of stuff and nobody could <laughs> you're in the right room <laughs> how many of you have had some kind of awakening maybe you define it as a non-dual awakening something along those lines great almost everybody but how many of people who just raised their hands feel that it hasn't really stabilized in your life as an ongoing living reality, at least not to the extent you would like it to. Okay? How many feel that it has stabilized? Okay. Is it unshakably stabilized? <laughs> Very good. Does it seem to be getting, well, maybe. <laughs> Don't get me what started. Color is it? <laughs> How many of you are confused or curious about how spiritual realization is lived amidst ordinary life? What it feels like? Do strong emotions still arise? Are relationships experienced differently? Does the focus or purpose of life change? So on. How many are curious about that? Right? Maybe you're not so curious because you're actually experiencing the answer to those questions. Um, how many of you feel that your awakening deepens as you learn to be more skillful with your animal instincts, emotions, relationships, physical existence. Somehow that deepens your relationship. 
Okay, almost everybody. So we're all kind of on the same page, I think. So you can see where we're going with this. And how many of you saw Adyashanti and, and uh, A.H. Almas' talk tonight? That whole talk was about what we're going to talk about tonight. And you know, this will give you more chance for probing some different areas and asking questions and stuff. So some of the themes we're going to talk about tonight are what the difference between an experience of awakening and an embodied awakening might be, what the relationship between the personality self, the mind-body vehicle, and awakened consciousness might be, whether clearing the mind-body vessel is a support for awakening, the never-ending unfoldment of awakening, as Adi was referring to tonight, through the human experience, and the question, is this inclusive recognition of awakeness and evolutionary impulse of consciousness, and what is its relevance to our contemporary world? Who feels motivated to start? I'll, I'll actually start. Good. Yeah. Hi, everybody. About 16, 17 years ago, I had this very profound experience of what people are calling awakening, this profound experience of feeling freed from a really difficult life, freed from a very painful existence. And, you know, kind of in some ways, like Eckhart Tolle was sitting on park benches, I was going to parks and I was sitting in ecstasy at the light glistening off the blades of grass. I was falling in love with like nature and the world. I was going out, I had a camper, I would go out and be alone in the wilderness for weeks at a time. And I, I had this beautiful connection with, with the earth, the planet, with the natural kind of rhythms of light and dark and walking barefoot on the ground. I had this beautiful feeling of presence in my life that I always felt should be there, but I never really felt was there. And that went on for quite a period of time. Then it came to pass that I started to need to do things in the world. I needed to have relationships in the world, I needed to do work in the world to support myself. And what I found is that all of that experience, all of that depth of presence and gratitude and beauty, it didn't necessarily translate into the, the daily routine of life. And so for me, it took some time because I felt like I might be betraying something, a teacher or a teaching or even my own realization. But for me, what came to pass is, is that I decided I needed to get to work and resolve some of the stuff that was going on inside my humanity, as Adya and Hamid were talking about today. And so I, I went everywhere that my intuition sent me, and I got very lucky and, and didn't get stuck or trapped in a lot of dead ends. And I found really useful ways to address the inner conflict, the judge, the hungry animal, the needy baby, all of the aspects of myself that were outstanding and that were still coming up and driving things in my life. And so that's what my life work has become, is to share with other people the methods, and I say methods and practices, and, and I want to say something about practices here because practices are often equated with seeking. But I don't see it that way. I don't see practices as seeking. I see practices as an art. When Segovia practices the guitar, he's not seeking. If you're practicing the art of your life, that doesn't mean you're seeking. That means you're cultivating something here. That means you're cultivating a body of presence. You're embodying presence. And it's a cultivation of presence. What I share with people is 
the way that they can most directly become in contact with themselves and find their own guidance through the difficult work of resolving the human patterns that are our own, that are our families, and that are our ancestral heritage even. <laughs> Incidentally, I think the word seeking is given too much of a bad rap. I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking. If you like seeking, seek like a son of a gun. And a time will come when the seeking energy subsides and you feel like it's more of an exploration and an adventure than in some kind of desperate quest. But, you know, if there's a strong sense of seeking, there's nothing wrong with it, in my opinion. I don't care what Papaji said. And just, you know, as, as a note, one of, the, one of the basic neural pathways in a human being is the seeking path. Yeah. If you look into the neurobiology, seeking is one of the primal neural pathways in a human body. So if you're rejecting that, you might actually be rejecting something of your innate humanity. In fact, my teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, former teacher, always used to say, the mind has a natural tendency to seek greater happiness. He used the word seek. So we can see it in our experience right now. We're sitting here talking, some beautiful music starts playing in the corner. Our attention is going to shift to it without effort because the mind just continues to seek for greater happiness. This question about whether practices support awakening or hinder awakening is a, is a real juicy one. And it's also in some ways a, a delicate conversation because it really depends almost on which side of the fence. If there was a fence, there isn't a fence, but if there was a fence, which side of the fence you're on. We can look at it like if you could say before awakening, is there a role for practices to cleanse the vessel, let's say, to, to, to clear the mind-body vehicle? Do meditation practices, emotional cathartic practices, psychotherapeutic practices, can they support the cleansing of the vessel so that awakeness can be more easily recognized and stabilized? Um, it's a little bit like polishing the sides of a diamond. If the sides of the diamond are covered in dust, which is the ancestral patterns and the conditioning, the family conditioning, the social conditioning, all the personal conditioning, if they're covered in dust, then the light of awakeness, which is always present, but it can't be fully recognized or it can't emanate through this particular body-mind vehicle. So does it support awakening in that respect? Well, it can polish the sides of the mirror but does it cause awakening? <laughs> I don't think that anything, we can't say that anything really causes awakening. So the seeking that perhaps is being referred to, the danger in that is that if we seek to create awakening or to cause this experience of awakening or this idea of awakening, because it's always an idea of awakening before it's actually been realized, and therefore it's not actually the way it is. <laughs> it's just a picture in the mind or an imagination. If we're seeking to achieve some kind of picture of awakening through following certain practices, then the danger in that is that we're seeking identity in those practices, and that simply reinforces the sense of self-identity. And that's where it becomes stuck. When we say that, well, practices are not relevant or not important. On the other hand, if those practices are seen, if you like, like a boat that takes you to the other shore, when the shore has been reached, to use that metaphor, then those practices naturally fall away. There's the other side 
of that coin, which is that, as in your experience, T, if awakening has been recognized and uh, all the qualities of being that come through that, like peace and bliss and all this, are realized, and then those contractive patterns re-emerge as part of the personality vehicle, then it would be naive and arrogant perhaps not to use those practices to support the cleansing of the vessel any further. So it's, it's not an easy answer, is it? It's kind of, it depends which side of the coin you're on. So it's using the practices intelligently and honestly that is the key point. We might ask, does the wind cause the sun to shine? No, of course, the sun is always shining, has always been shining, but the wind is really good at blowing the clouds away. And when the clouds are blown away, holy mackerel, the sun's shining. Guess it always was. That's my angle on practices. My thought about practices is that if we're following our innate intelligence, our own intuitive heart, that the practices that we're needing to, to be following will reveal themselves. At times it might be inquiry. You know, there might be a time where the mind is really seeking for clarity and for understanding. And so then you'll be drawn to different methods of inquiry. And other times the heart is wanting to be revealed. And you'll be drawn to bhakti paths and, and such. And the body, the body in yoga, the body wants to open up and have veils be removed. And so I think that there's a, a natural intelligence that can guide and that we can tune into and we can learn to tune into. And I think in a sense that's what we're doing here. I don't want to speak for you, but I think what we're doing here is we're providing that kind of guidance toward your inner guidance. But we're not these high holy spiritual gurus that are standing on a platform and you're in, in a room with 10,000 people. We're working one-on-one -on -one with people. We're saying, what's happening for you now, and how are you feeling stuck? What's, what's getting in your way? What's coming up in your life? Why is that? What's needed? And speaking very directly, personally to people, cultivating a person, cultivating a soul in this world, letting this beautiful soul emerge like an elegant flower emerging from the earth. It's very organic. It's very kind. It's a very compassionate process. And learning to cultivate that for oneself. I mean, really, the, the pointer is always back to ourselves and being a light unto ourselves in the end. Whether we're drawn to practices, whether we're drawn to working with different teachers, watching Buddha at the gas pump, <laughs> whatever it is, in the end, it's, it's our own inner selves that are guiding. And that's the one to be focusing on and to be listening to. That's how I feel about it. Tia, you mentioned that you went through an Eckhart Tolle phase after your awakening, where you weren't too uh, functional in the world, you know, you're just experiencing a lot of bliss and clarity and so on. Um, I'm just curious about the audience, if there are many people in the audience who had some kind of profound awakening and more or less had to metaphorically sit on park benches for some time after that where it made you somewhat dysfunctional in terms of the ability to hold down a job or anything like that. Show of hands on that point. Several. So the rest of you didn't have any problem? I mean, you, a lot of people say they've had some kind of significant awakening. It just, uh, no, 
just kind of like took it in stride and kept on going? My experience was it was more of a, an opening and a realization and a release. So it was an incredible release of the burden that I was carrying. Yeah. So this just heavy kind of mind thing that I held for years mm -hmm. suddenly just cracked mm -hmm. open and the whole thing just fell apart. It took a little processing time to deal with it in the world, but I didn't have the experience of not being functional. Or not. I, I wouldn't say that I wasn't functional. I would say that it, it just didn't make a lot of sense when I went to move into action. I was still functional, but I was still functioning. When I'd function, I'd kind of go back to the old ways of functioning because there wasn't really a template for new functioning. There, the development wasn't there yet. Boy, I've definitely gone through some non-functional periods. Obsessive, idiosyncratic, really certifiably nuts. But I put on a good face. You know, I could get up in front of a group and give a talk. I may be totally nuts right now for all you know. Uh, <laughs> putting on a good face. It's taken decades for that. It took decades. It's probably still, it's still happening. Ask my wife. But, you know, there's just been this continual reshuffling and purification and rearrangement and integration, which has, you know, made me a better human being in many respects. And I don't see it ever ending, as, as Adi was saying tonight. It's, it's a lifelong process. Yeah, and first there's the what was spoken to earlier by Adya and Hamida, you know, and it's, it's something that we as a panel really seem to be congruent on, is that there's first an emptying out process that happens, and a letting go of identity, and letting go of the landmarks that we're used to, the ways that we perceive the world, and the dropping away of all that. That can be an ongoing long process, you know, that can still, these chunks of identity can still drop off and um, suddenly it's not there anymore. Or inquiry will be used and it's purposely being used because something is really gnawing on itself and it knows that it's wanting to be let, let go of. And so there's this intelligence that's moving and that is guiding the whole process. Like the, the sense of I is born and then at some point it wants to be let go of. And that's just the, the evolution of a human being, in my, the healthy evolution of a human being, in my mind. And so it has a way of returning back to source, back to essence, back to its state of, of freedom, inherent freedom, free of what it's accumulated over a lifetime. And so that's kind of like the, the emptying out phase. And, and there are so many beautiful teachings out there that support that. Then, when it's reached a point of stasis where it's been stopped in the kind of like in the beyond, beyond place where it doesn't need to go any more beyond. And so, suddenly, that's kind of like where the place that people speak about the end of seeking occurs. There's no more momentum to want to return back. It's, it's just this natural, you know, that it's not there anymore when that desire is gone to want to return. And it's this, it's so that, that whole seeking is actually intelligence, mm. this life intelligence mm. moving. It knows exactly what it's doing. And if we can put our trust in it in a way and just let it take us, the momentum of it, itself and other, that gap closing, and it wants to know itself as that. And so that is the seeking. It's like, what am I? This gap closes. And then when it's done, there's this pause. 
and some people stay in that pause a while <laughs> because it's a really beautiful place to be. You know, this place of free of identity, free of, of our conditioning oftentimes. Sometimes it's for a nanosecond. Some, some people, as you know, ease into this. It's not a sudden kind of collapse of big um, fireworks. And then some people, I had kind of a big fireworks thing. <laughs> and then, then there's this beautiful, natural re-entry phase. That's the, the piece that we really are wanting to speak to here today with you all is that is the re-entry phase of life back into itself. So that wakes up to itself and then it has this natural intelligence, well what what am I? The fullness of what I am what I am, the full other fifty percent. So there's the beyond and then there's everything else. And so then that beautiful paradox gets gets resolved. And that re-entry, it takes the shape of what was spoken to earlier by Adya and Hamid so beautifully. It goes into every area of our lives. It goes into saying yes, basically. It's a big yes to everything, back to a yes to um, even the conditioning, a yes to even being a me. You know, that sense of me doesn't, doesn't drop away. It doesn't drop away completely. It gets thinner, but the sense of me is part of the whole. And so that yes includes all aspects of itself. And that's the beautiful journey of embodiment. That's an important point. Amoda, yeah. do you want to say something? No, I was just really going to support that in the sense that I find that in, in speaking with people in my groups and, and sessions, that that's one of the main points of confusion. That is there still a sense of me? Is there still a sense of I? Is there still a sense of self? Many people, the majority of people, even if they've had an awakening experience, really still hold on to this idea that there's no self. And they've created this fantasy that no self means that there's no more bad feelings, there's uh, just this kind of pain-free life. And I know it sounds very naive, but it's actually what I encounter all the time is still holding to some idea of this and then stuff happens the movement of life still comes through and the feelings and the emotions and all the challenges that come with being a human being and all the messiness that comes and there's disappointment with that and there's a disillusionment with that and even if it's that a, a subtle disillusionment it tends to separate again that which has been recognized as awakeness and this idea of self. So there's still an inner division, an inner conflict happening that seems to create much distress. And so the seeking starts again. So it's good to speak of this, that the self, the personality, the sense of I doesn't just disappear completely. In my experience, how, how I've experienced it and how I see it being experienced is that it's not the self that dies, it's not even the ego that dies, because as long as you're alive in a body, you still need an ego. If we're talking about ego as that which perceives inside from outside, yeah? If I couldn't see what was in me and what was out here, I'd probably be psychotic, you know, or I'd probably be just a blubbery mess. 
you have to be able to maneuver in the three-dimensional reality and that has perceived boundaries, perceived inside and outside. Now that's not the deepest truth of it and that's not the deepest recognition, but it is part of operating through form, as form, whilst we're still alive. So I feel that the ego still exists, but what happens is that the sense of identity is not locked into the ego. So it's not encapsulated in time and space. And in realization or liberation or awakeness, it's like the sense of self-identity becomes liberated from the prison of three-dimensional reality. And in that liberation, it becomes non-localized, unlocalized. In other words, it becomes, you could say, it becomes one with everything. It's uh, not contained in me, but there is still a me. And so the perception of I is very different to when it's still locked in the prison of egoic identity, but it still operates. Yeah. So it's like the personality or the self, the, the, the mind-body vehicle becomes transparent, it becomes permeable. And so the experience of life is still very human, it's still very ordinary. Pain is still experienced, if pain is part of direct reality, uh, uh, everything ex is experienced. In, in fact, it's much more intimate, it's exquisite. It's exquisite in its sensitive response to what is. It's exquisite in its agony and its ecstasy. So in some way, it's much, much deeper. It's much, much juicier. It's much more alive and vibrant. Everything is felt in its full vibrancy. But the self isn't locked into that. It's not stuck in that, or it doesn't stick to the self. So the self is experienced as permeable. Everything passes through very quickly. And if there is a contraction, then maybe it gets stuck there for a while, there's some stickiness. But if the light of awareness is fully revealed, if you like, that contraction can dissolve very easily and quickly. In the light, everything is purified. So everything passes through and everything is purified. So there isn't this dense boundary, there isn't this um, rigid boundary of self. So, yes, there's a me, <laughs> and it's the same me, and it's a very different me. One way of putting it is I have this glass of water, and there's water in the glass. And if I take this water and put it into the ocean, there's still water in the glass, but there's also the ocean. And so, you know, you don't lose the sense that I am a person. You just gain a bigger context. I'm not only a person. I'm also this vastness, but I'm still a person. And in the middle of the person, there's nobody. So there's person and no person. There's experience and there's absence of experience. And they're always one thing. There are two sides of one coin. So there's a person. There's a re-emergence of, there's a person. There's a sense of me. But in the middle of that, there's no me. There's nothing there in the center of anything. And so that's why this light of awareness that Amora is speaking about, when, it's, um, when it goes to, to work with conditioning, with areas that are challenged, when the sense of me is that there's like a hole in the middle, <laughs> that's what happens with awakening. There's like a hole in the middle of everything. There's the, the born and the unborn. There's that kind of die before you die experience. And so there's um, experience and then there's 
no experience happening simultaneously. So when embodiment is happening, it's not like you're getting re-identified necessarily. It's that light of awareness out of love, actually, is moving into areas of wanting to have those areas become whole, to know themselves as whole. So it's these places that have been denied, there's um, pain body things, there's just confusion that gets accumulated. And so this light of awareness, it, it, it descends back down into the vehicle, and it's making it, it's falling in love with itself, actually, with all of itself. And it does so without fear of losing itself. And the reason it's not afraid is because it isn't a center of identity any longer. It doesn't believe that it can be lost. When a me that believes in itself is afraid of being lost, but when there's no center to me, it's not, the fear drops away. And so there's this kind of courage that happens in this, you know, going into the unknown territory. And it really is, you know, so deeply intimate, so deeply intimate. And everything that's getting cleared out here in oneself is then how you are seeing life on the outside, right? So this purified vessel, this heart that starts to take over is how you start to see all of life and even the difficult things, right? So the things, the places that are difficult inside and that are hard to connect to, this kindness towards oneself begins to take place, and then this kindness starts to take place outside in the world, how we feel about things that are difficult and challenging. So it sounds like you're talking about the movement of compassion or the descent of compassion into, mm -hmm. our, into our own yeah, person, into yeah. our own self. Yeah. yeah. Did everyone get what you were saying? Did that make sense in terms of, uh, you know, there's a me and there's not a me that you're doing and you're not doing? Does that sound contradictory or, or anything? I think, you know, just one little simple way of helping to understand it maybe is that, that we're multidimensional in, in reality. There so there's a vast range to our existence. And ordinarily people are kind of locked within a fairly small portion of that range in which they just perceive themselves to be an individual doing things and, very much in control, sort of. But then if the range of our conscious awareness expands, it comes to incorporate levels of our existence which don't fit that same narrow description, which are silent, which are not doing anything, which, you know, and so one begins to have the experience of, hey, I'm really busy doing stuff. I'm not doing anything at all. All this stuff is going on. Nothing is happening. You know, it seems kind of, like it would be div divisive in some way in one's experience, but one comes to incorporate the paradox within one's experience, and so it all just fits rather nicely, and it actually makes life much more smooth and easy. It doesn't set up any kind of conflict. It's like there's no ownership. There's no ownership of the me. There's no ownership of what happens. There's no ownership of life. The wave doesn't own the ocean. Yeah. And there's a great freedom in that. <laughs> I would say, though, that sometimes it does. Sometimes we come back in and we're very attached to something or we're very reactive about something or there's some moment that just catches us and we really believe this moment and it feels so real and it feels like this is, this is life or death, right? And so suddenly we're back in like life or death struggle over 
you know, whether somebody put mayonnaise on our sandwich or not. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I think the freedom of flow between, you know, these expansive, beautiful, blissful states, the states of stillness, the states of like feeling contact and oneness with other beings and the rest of the life on the planet, even a chair, those are beautiful states. But we tend to want to exclude the states where we're like, maybe we're feeling kind of hurt or small or wounded. We tend to exclude that. That's not part of our spirituality. What if we were free enough to just feel wounded? What if we were free enough to be petty? What if we were free enough to be dumb? What, what, you know, what if we were just free enough to be whatever we happen to be in every moment? That's the, to me, the um, waking up to, whole, to wholeness, to unity, to just really deeply getting, and it, it's an ongoing understanding, actually, that, that takes place where you realize, realize this, that you really are the whole, which means that you are the one that is upset, you are the one that is maybe confused. So the wholeness realizes that it is those things. That's what's happening. And so there's within boundness, there's unboundness. It's the same kind of thing, the paradox that takes place. And so there's this ability to see how micro one can really be, how absolutely involved one can be in experience and how it's really okay that there's nothing that's going to be lost because really that is containing the whole the whole is the whole so the whole already has everything in it so when there's an understanding when there's a stepping back that happens the, this kind of thing that we call awakening where you step back from experience enough to realize that you are the space that everything is arising in. When that is really known that you are the space that everything is arising in, there is this chance, this opportunity that you, this re-welcoming of entering into the arising. I didn't understand part of what you just said. You just, you just said that the whole gets upset or the whole is petty or, or whatever well, because, you were saying? Yeah, because the space itself is the whole. It's just this, this languaging, the oneness. The oneness, the, the, the totality, the, the totality. vastness right. of the absolute. Right. And right. so within that, everything that's arising is part of it. Yeah. Everything the that's good, arising. The good, the bad, and the ugly, whatever. Everything. So if there's pettiness, if there's confusion, that's the whole being petty. I see. That's the whole Maybe being Maybe not confused. the totality of the whole, but some expression of pettiness coming up. This, this particular Within wave, it. this is a petty wave coming up in the ocean, right. but it doesn't mean the whole ocean is petty. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just like what uh, earlier, what Adya and Hamid were saying, that in every experience, that in itself right there, there's absolute truth right then, mm -hmm. what's happening. I think this is the point. This is, to me, this is really one of the crux of the points of embodiment and what it truly means to be a human being is to come back into realizing that every expression is truth. Some expressions are kind of veiled truth. When, we, when the pettiness arises, or when we're bitter, or when we're whatever the feeling is, or we're angry, or when that feeling arises, what's the true nature of that? Well, one thing that I've, I have a difficulty with, and I've had the experience 
but I think is, is a step along the way, is feeling like this vast, spacious awareness in which everything arises and dissolves. I'm saying be the vast awareness in which everything arises and dissolves, and be in contact with everything that arises and dissolves. In that, everything that arises is found to be none other than the truth, than the truth of reality, the truth of being. So anger, what is anger? Oh, well, let's check it out. Let's investigate. Let's get curious. Let's find out the truth of our experience. Let's find out the truth of our lives. What is it? Are we curious? Do we want to, are we exploring? What is it about being here? Is it just about kind of getting through things until we die? Or is it about like this life is incredibly precious beyond anything? It's so incredibly precious. It's so incredibly unlikely. These weird little two-armed, two-legged two people that kind of trot around, you know, in defiance of gravity in a certain sense with all, the, with all the important packaging up here, right, on this planet. We totally defy, we're, we're particularly weird creatures. Isn't it fucking cool? <laughs> this is it. Like, let's party, you know? This is really it. <laughs> Were you kind of saying just now that the thought came to me? What maybe, were you saying? <laughs> no, were, you, were you saying just now, don't use the vastness as a refuge in which to hide from uncomfortable things? Well, you can if saying? you want to, but if, if, that, if that's working for you. And, but, you know, if, if you kind of know in your heart, yeah, you know, I did have this experience of vastness, but now I am kind of using it to hide out in. You might as well just give up the game and tell the truth. The truth is going to come out eventually. You know, the truth is going to come out eventually in your life. Why not just tell the truth now? Why not just, you know, take the painful pill? Give it up. Give it up. <laughs> give up the, you know, give up the games and just be a real human being right here with what exact, exactly where you are with what you're experiencing. This is what we have. This is our experience now. Uh, she was saying, are you more or less saying you're embracing your humanness? I think I'm exactly saying that. Yeah. Okay, so you were saying that the fear drops away as part of the experience that you experienced going from not having full awareness to having full awareness. What, did I understand that? The fear of going into experience? You said fear, and I understood uh -huh. it sort of like psychological fear, existential uh -huh. fear. Uh -huh. So that wouldn't count necessarily as the human experience that continues. You don't experience fear on that level. Oh, that's a great question, yeah. Um, or if there is a transitional period where you still were. Right. If... right, so in regards to fear. So fear is, to me, not a problem. I've learned to become comfortable entering into fear, exploring fear. Because fear has a lot of different flavors to it. It's never exactly the same flavor. We just put this umbrella word and call it fear. But at different times, it feels differently, right? In different parts of our body. And sometimes it's really more mental, and sometimes it's more a physical feeling. I think that one of the ways to, to meet fear, to really be with fear, is to break it down to sensation. And to be with the sensation, and to allow it to be there, because actually it has information. Everything that you're feeling is actually part of wisdom. It's not a mistake. So if we get close to it and we really enter into it, then it, it has something to share with you. And then 
right in the center of every feeling, of every experience, there's the, the emptiness is right there, the place that isn't afraid, the place that is comfortable with the experience. And so that's what I'm speaking to. It's not like fear has completely disappeared. And it's not even a goal of mine. You know how in spiritual circles we, we set up these, these paradigms, these ideas of what it's supposed to look like to be free? And I think that it's a setup oftentimes. Because then we're like, we're neglecting our own humanness. The things that are just naturally arising in our bodies. And there's intelligence there. Sometimes fear is because you're entering into a, an unknown, a new, a new place. It could actually be something that's kind of exciting. So just to allow yourself to walk towards and just rest with something as much as possible is kind of like the beginning for me of how to meet something like fear. And then this, this beautiful connection can happen within it. A self-connection. It's not separate from you. There's not like fear in you. So it's just one thing. And fear is a part of you. So you can feel that and make friends with it. Does that help? Yeah. It sounds hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is because it's, uh, she says it sounds scary. It's because we've been trained since we were little to turn away from uncomfortable feelings. So part of it is a retrainment. It's not like you have to wait for some kind of awakening experience in order to learn how to start meeting your inner experience, yourself, your feelings. And so to turn towards things and to, to learn how to step towards them little by little, eventually embracing them, that is a certain type of intelligence that totally serves every step of the way, before, during, after awakening, you know? It's all part of it, and it might sound hard, but it's such a gift to yourself. Regarding yeah. fear, there's this line in the Upanishads that goes, certainly all fear is born of duality. And a lot of people report when they have an, a, a profound shift or awakening that they go through this like sound barrier of fear and experience this tense, almost terrifying fear and then break through it and the fear dissipates. So would you say, in your experience or however you want to explain it, that awakening should eliminate fear to a great extent because we're no longer this sort of isolated, vulnerable little thing without, our, without any kind of solid foundation which does arise when, when one is really established in being or in the self? I did have like a, a three-week period about two, three years ago, maybe it was three years ago, where I felt like there was an amplification of fear. Mm -hmm. Like it went from like a two to like an eight. It was just mm -hmm. really high. And I had no idea if and when it was going to ever end. Mm -hmm. And it was, it felt like it was personal fear. It felt like it was also collective fear. And it had a tonality to it. And it was almost like, it felt like that you even had a sound to it. It was intense. And it was almost like it was like what was in the background got brought to the foreground and it was undoing itself yeah it was like burning itself out and the way that it was burning itself out was by letting myself surrender to it because i didn't know how long it would be there I mean, you know it's one of those things where you just eventually you start to learn that all of experience is god 
and that one experience is not more God than another experience. So having this amplification of fear was like I just just sat with it, burned in it, and then it, it dissipated. So yeah, I, I feel like that is true, that a large part does go away. And then there's this human thing that still happens, you know, with, with certain types of fears that still arise. Yeah. I mean, if you hung Ramana Maharshi from the Golden Gate Bridge by his heels, I think there'd be some human, you know, <laughs> adrenaline yeah, thing going on and fear, despite the fact that on some level he'd probably be untouched by that experience. Are, are, we, getting, are we doing reductum ad Ramana Maharshi, everything now reduces back? Yeah. <laughs> That's just the thing I see in this. Everything ends, ultimately reduces well, back down to talking about Ramana yeah. Maharshi. Well, the, the thing about one, la one last thing... Kind of like people thing. bringing up Hitler whenever yeah, they want Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, one last thing I'll say about fear, it, just in, in this conversation from on my part, is that that fear and all these different aspects of emotions, different things that come up, are not separate from God. So that when that kind of like, when you stop seeing it as, that is proof that you are not one with everything. That is proof that you've lost something or that God's not here. When that levels out, then fear is held in a completely different way. Then it's just sensation, it's just a current of energy, just like all energy flows through. Don't be shy, Amoda, if you have anything to say. Just... <laughs> well, there's not much to add to that. The greatest fear is an existential fear. The fear that you are, if you get to the root of it, absolutely alone, if you like, in the great totality of the universe, that you are separate from that. It's kind of like the core wound of separation. It's a kind of primordial separation as we come out of the, the womb, out of the oneness of the womb. And so it's a universal human experience. In my experience, when that particular texture of fear was turned towards because the futility of escape from that, which I'd spent most of my life turning away from in, in many different forms, when it was finally seen, there was no choice, if you like, than to surrender to that. And that surrender meant that the self or the sense of self might, it's unknown in that experience as you're experiencing it, but it might well be annihilated. You know, the existential fear might be true in some way, that I don't exist, that I will be swallowed up into this black hole. And for me, it was when that was fully surrendered to, that that particular root of fear was completely dissolved. What emerged from that was initially a sense of oneness. I don't particularly like that word because it means different things <laughs> to different people, but it was a sense of there is no me, there is only this. <laughs> so some aspect of the psychological sense of self felt like it died. There was a death of self in that. And all that was experienced was God. And for the first time in my life, I actually experienced it as God. That's not a concept or a word or a, it meant nothing to me before that other than the usual religious thing. So I experienced everything as God. And I am not separate from that. And for me, that was a real turning point. That fear, if you like, which gave prior to that experience 
uh, gave birth to victim consciousness. Because if I am separate from anything, then I am a victim of that when it doesn't match my expectations of how it should be. And I saw how I had been a victim of everything. My own thoughts, my own feelings, my relationships, my own beliefs. And it's almost like all of that just went into a black hole and just got sucked in. And there was nothing. And in that nothing, there was everything. And that was God. So God is nothing. God is everything. And I am that. And from that moment on, that victim consciousness completely has dissolved. And what was allowed in that was that every whisper or little tendril of belief that had played itself out as a victim just came up and got sucked into that hole, which was initially a black hole, but actually was light. <laughs> so everything got dissolved in that. And that happened both immediately as a almost nanosecond experience, but also then had a continual unfoldment that I call the maturation. And that maturation took a long time, like maybe seven, eight years, <laughs> and it's still going on. So for me, that was kind of like an immediate, very direct and sudden, spontaneous dissolvement of that existential fear. And then there was a kind of maturation of that that happened over a very long period of time. Nice. Your turn. I just want to thank you for sharing your experiences, because um, this is part of the beauty of awakening is that we all have these experiences. But one of the things that can happen is that we hear a beautiful experience like that and then it becomes something we want to move towards or something we need in our life or something that will fulfill us or a way that we will become ultimately enlightened. Just bringing it way back into the physical, out of the metaphysical, people, depending on your traumatic history, depending on your, your attachment history, people can have a chronically triggered fear system in their brain. Your nervous system can be chronically triggered towards fear. And that, regardless of whatever awakening experience you may have had, if that's really in your body, that can be helped along and that can be worked with, particularly a lot of the new trauma work that's being done. That can be aided by certain practices, by certain kind of interpersonal um, regulating experiences. So it's important to understand that if we have a chronic condition of something, that we not immediately jump towards trying to find a metaphysical relief from that something, but also give to the possibility that we may just need to do certain regulating practices in our lives. That could be meditation, that could be qigong, that could be working with a trauma therapist. This is you know, coming right back down into, again, into matter, into the brain. The brain is continually growing and repairing. We know that even now, late into life, you know, the brain plasticity, I think you had Rick Hansen on your, did, your show, yeah. didn't you? So, you know, you can watch, you want to hear a better uh, dissertation about that, watch his show with Rick Hansen. Neuroplasticity <laughs> is the word. But let's also take care of ourselves. Let's take care of ourselves. Let's take care of our bodies. Let's do what needs to be done. You wake up and it's, it's like the, what is it, chop wood, carry water. You chop wood, carry water, and you wake up and you chop wood, carry water. So have a balance between seeing, it is this inner guidance that you're talking about, a balance between seeing, when do I need to just take some steps and work with this on a very practical level, and when do I need to really stop and face the fact that this body won't be here forever? 
The people I love won't be here forever. This lifetime is limited. Every experience is limited. So there's that back and forth. Is that, does that seem consistent with what you're saying? It's all about honesty, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just being really honest with where you're at and really honest with what is your direct experience. And it really doesn't matter. Ultimately, what is here, what matters is your capacity to fully be intimate with that, to fully face it, to turn towards it, to sit inside it. And what I feel, and what happened to me ultimately, is I realized I needed somebody to help me with that. And I went and found the people that would help me with the things that I needed help with, on the physical and on the metaphysical. And that, what it does is, in a sense, it optimizes your experience. So then, you know, you said burning. And there was a hell of a lot of burning going on in this body. There was a hell of a lot of burning that was happening for me. And it, there was a, a ton of uncomfortableness. There was a ton of kind of very difficult states. And, and my orientation to it was just sit with this, just sit with this, just let it move through. But now I know there are more skillful ways of working with that. And I really encourage you to find whatever method you can to optimize your experience, to help your experience along in this physical body. I got a lot of nervous system support before, mm. during, and after. Sometimes I still go and get a cranial session or something. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a lot being in a body. It's a lot being in a body now on this planet. And the nervous system can get overloaded. And especially when conditioning is coming up to be met, I totally agree with you. Mm. You know, I, there are all kinds of modalities out there that are, can be supportive. Mm. And a flexible nervous system contributes very, very much to how free we feel. Of course, freedom is always here, but do you know that? Can you feel it? So having a flexible nervous system really is a great support. There's a Dan Siegel phrase. He makes a lot of acronyms. And is it acronym? And uh, he calls it FACES. It's flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. Flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. So that, that gives you a kind of a feel of, of how our nervous system, how an integrated nervous system, how a nervous system in balance can be functioning. So you're wondering about yeah. what it's like to be parenting and my two teenagers, I have a boy and a girl. From a place where there's this, where there's an emptiness. Emptiness, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. That's a great question. So from the place of where there's this sense of the me not being solid. Well, the rubber hits the road in every area of our lives. And, and parenting, of course, is a big one, especially with teenagers. It's the same kind of thing of what I was describing earlier, is that there's congruently, simultaneous to perhaps difficulty, there's freedom within it. That's the way that I guess all of life is being approached. And so I don't have any kind of like limits within myself of what I'm not letting myself feel or experience or how much I care, how much I worry. You know, with teenagers, they're just, <laughs> they push all your buttons. They're sometimes walking dangers, right, mm -hmm. to themselves. So there's, there's all that kind of like the body thing coming up, the instinctual drives or fears of, of losing, you know, the main fear would be losing one's child during this time that is kind of dangerous time, right? I think what it is, it's awakeness, learning how to be awake within all experience, 
and to be present to all experience and to not flinch, to like, even if there's flinching, you know, to be with it, to be with it, to be with their pain, because there's this like bonding that happens with our children where we feel so intimate with them. We know what they are ourselves in such an intimate way. So there's this survival instinct that can come up with another body. So there's just this increasing, I, I guess, ability or desire or willingness, probably willingness is probably the best word, to remain open to experiencing whatever is exper being experienced and to stay present with them in what they're experiencing. So they get to experience someone in their lives who is willing to dive in with them into their, their reality, right? So I don't go into any kind of denial of their reality. I don't go into any kind of denial of their sense of being a me, of taking things really seriously and things hurting or their hearts being broken or whatever it is they're going through. So there's a willingness to just like be so present to that as if it's real, completely real. And on one level it is, right? never would deny their experience. So there's that. There's like this full diving into, into experience with them. And then at the same time, we can only be, we bring ourselves to everything that we do. We bring our state of boundness and our state of freedom to everything that we're doing. So parenting from a place of being less bound inside, of knowing that inherently that we are free and that there is no center, even if there's this whole vortex, a whole hurricane, you know, like this tsunami, right in the center is a hole. And that's true for them as well, whether they know it or not. So there's kind of like, I'm with you, I believe you completely, I, I meet you there, no denying of experience, and can't help but bring what's free to it. Does that help? Yeah. So he asked the panelists, you know, you've all experienced an awakened state. What brought you to the point where you felt that it was now time to teach or to start helping others? So his question is, do you find that teaching if you are helping others is enhancing or detracting from your own journey? So answer in any order that you're feeling. It's really quite difficult to say how it arose or why it arose as an impulse. It's almost impossible to pin it down. You know, whenever I try to pin it down, it's kind of elusive as to say, well, that's why, or that's the time, or, you know, for this reason or that reason. All I can say is that it arose, for me, it was never a goal or an agenda. It arose because it did. <laughs> it's choiceless. The, the impulse to speak arose, but I never had the intention to teach or to offer satsang or anything like that. I had written a book following on from this so-called experience. I mean, it's not an experience. To me, it's not an experience that was experienced. It was what I just described about this existential falling into that and something dissolved in that. But I did write from that place. I wrote a book called How to Find God in Everything. Mm although there's no how-to, but it was really the invitation into welcoming God as everything. And I didn't know what to do with that book. 
Now, I have had a lot of experience in working in personal transformation. So I, I have worked with people one-on-one -on, -one on a more therapeutic level, although I'm not an official therapist. I have worked with people in emotional catharsis and breath work and holding lots of groups, but in slightly different capacity. So I, I do have that role, if you like, as part of my experience. So I have facilitated, as I say, working with people to, to move through certain energetic blocks that had actually dissolved as a, as a role and as a path in life. But I, I imagine, or I, I, I see, that that experience will have been part of my life's movement. So I can't deny that. So it's not like I just started teaching out of, um, previous to that, I was working in ASDA or something. No, it was part of my experience. But there was a very long gap where there was nothing happening, where I wrote the book, I didn't know what to do with it, I had no agenda about teaching, I didn't feel ready to speak about it, I didn't know how to speak about it, and really for about, I can't remember, maybe four, five, six, even seven years, nothing much was happening. I really sat in the unknown. A lot of that was very, very uncomfortable because a lot of my deeper beliefs of lack of self-worth arose and some deeper, perhaps ancestral condi conditioning, deeper conditioning arose in that. But I had the willingness to just allow that to kind of reveal itself in time. I did a little bit of speaking about my book, but it was kind of in a different context and, and it didn't work for me. It was more public speaking and I felt sort of squeezed into a particular role of being a, a motivational speaker, which just wasn't right. So I dropped everything and in dropping it, there came a point about only two years ago where the impulse moved in me again, and I was living in a very small town in England, so it wasn't like there, were, there was much of a community to work with, but I, I simply hired a room and I sat in silence. And for the first time, I did not give a public talk, or try to. I did not try to facilitate anyone's uh, energetic release. I, I did nothing, I just simply sat there in silence with my eyes closed. And through some synchronicity, somebody that I'd met in the local Whole Foods store, who was a Course in Miracles teacher, came along and he brought a couple of friends and we sat there in silence. And I just spoke from silence, but there was no agenda in teaching anything or even in helping anyone. That didn't occur. I can't help anyone. <laughs> so there was nothing. And out of that, that particular impulse just kept on coming and so that continued for months and another year and I found at some point after about seven or eight months it was like oh wow this is satsang it just kind of revealed itself as that and it's almost like when it finally had a name a name that I didn't feel embarrassed of or out of alignment with it just all fell into place in some way. And it's like it was choiceless from that point on. It just had its own momentum and it still has its own momentum. And within that, there is no personal agenda in it. And if there is a whisper of an agenda of an outcome or a direction, it is so not comfortable that it's immediately just evaporates back into emptiness. And that's it. So it feels like the, the me in it which there is a me, obviously, because I have to plan my schedule and <laughs> organize things and communicate and whatever else needs to happen in the, in the background. But the me in it is 
really not the doer. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but that is the experience of it. It is simply life happening through me, as me, and in that sense, I'm its servant. That's both uh, very humbling and it's also very graceful because it feels like it's just a river of grace that's flowing. And that's what's happening. And maybe one day something else will happen. I have no idea what direction it will go in. It's just happening. And when it stops happening, something else will happen. He's asking again, I'm saying it for the recording, he's asking again, does doing that enhance your personal evolution opening? or whatever? I suppose it does, but I don't have that, I don't even have that perception of it. I don't see it as giving anything to me. It's giving to itself. So there's no sense of me feeling like, oh, this is teaching me something more, or this is opening me even more, or it's adding to my life. It probably is facilitating a deeper opening, but it doesn't, it doesn't get perceived that way. So you don't see it as a practice? No, I don't see it as a practice. <laughs> there's nobody practicing. <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of, I don't know, I guess it's like forging a sword in, in the fire. <laughs> there's a kind of forging of that sword in the actual just doing of it, I, I suppose. But that's not how it's seen. It's not reflected on, on some, as something that's being added to, to this life. Do you guys want to answer his question also, or should we go on to another okay. question? I just say a simple thing. A lot of stuff, like she said, but it's an overflowing of the heart. And yes, it enhances because that's, that's what's happening. And if your heart intention is to move with what's true for you, you can't help but develop. You can't help but develop skills. You can't help but experience the joy of you know, the interpersonal relationships that happen. And can't help but clarify, like you said, you know, maybe some of the other reasons why we want to be sitting in front of people and talking, right? So there's clarification and there's development, as, as Hamid was talking about earlier today. Does anybody else have a question at the moment? It's one thing that uh, I was talking about with a friend earlier that I think might be good to just throw out there because a lot of people get tripped up by it. Speaking in terms of my own experience, I kind of started out with the feeling that this or that enlightened person must be perfect in every respect. That was my conception of what enlightenment was. And that pretty much any word that came out of their mouth was the gospel truth. Anything they did was kind of divinely inspired, even if it didn't make sense to me, or if it seemed kind of nutty in some way or something. I think, well, you know, cosmic intelligence is inscrutable, and who am I to say I, I, I must not understand it? You know, there's so many stories of so many teachers ending up caught with their pants down, literally, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and many people have become seriously disillusioned. I mean, I know, I know people who just completely left the spiritual path because of this sort of thing, or others who just became really cynical and bitter and mm -hmm. critical and negative and, mm -hmm. and so on. So I think this topic relates a great deal to embodiment because some of the teachers I'm referring to just were blazingly bright in terms of their consciousness. Really, you know, knock your socks off. Uh, walk into a room and your whole awareness shifts in their presence. And yet it's discovered that behind the scenes they were doing this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, Ken Wilber's talked a lot about this with his idea of lines of development, that you can be really f fully, highly developed along certain lines and 
rather stunted in others. Mm-hmm. I kind of early on had the understanding that consciousness is tightly correlated with all the aspects of our personality and behavior and ethics and all those things. And you know, I've since come to feel <laughs> that the correlation is still there, but it's like a big stretchy rubber band where there can be, you know, things can get pretty far out of correlation and there might be a little bit of a tug to the thing that's out of correlation, but it can still stay way out of correlation for throughout a person's life. They can be highly developed in their consciousness and yet kind of immature in, in, in other respects. So my understanding of embodiment, if it's really lived up to, if, if one really achieves embodiment, would be to actually integrate all, the, all those various other aspects and to not be way out of sync. I think a lot of well-known teachers have, you know, who had various behavioral problems that we're referring to, never really had the opportunity to do that because they were in a bubble and very often explicitly prevented any kind of feedback or criticism. And so they could kind of go more and more out there in terms of their, their behavior without any checks and balances. Um, and I know a lot of teachers, contemporary teachers that I respect, um, really appreciate the checks and balances and have people around them who will call them on their stuff if, if they start getting out of whack. Okay, I'm going to repeat his question for the recording. So he was saying, what place does humility have in embodiment for you? And the first part was the energy of humility. Well, what, what would you say is humility? What would you say is humility? How would you define humility as a quality, as an energy? Yeah, how would you define humility? said that, what place does that have in this process, this journey? Yeah, what is, it, what is its importance or its role in this whole journey? And, and particularly with reference to embodiment and with reference to not getting in trouble because of blind spots, regardless of how highly evolved we may become. It was inspired by what you were saying. Inspired by what I was saying. I'll just begin by saying that the the checks and balances that you were speaking about, mm-hmm. you know, with having people around, well, they can be your friends, they can be your family, your spouse, right? Yeah. Yes, spouse. But ultimately, it's ourselves. So I think it comes down to telling ourselves the truth and being vigilant inside to not moving when something arises, to staying with it, to staying with an uncomfortableness mm-hmm. that is arising. I think that that is a, also a question of how deep one's awakening is, because the deeper that it's gone into the embodiment process, there's this understanding that everything is, is that, everything is God. So there's the, the desire to want to deceive oneself or to deceive others collapses. One of the things that happens with awakening is that there's this uh, deep desire to want to be authentic and be real authentic and real to oneself and to others, to not be honest with where one is at in truth, it would feel so painful. It feels painful inside. So you wouldn't want to do that to yourself. And it also has to do with that movement of love, of self-love, that love, it has a desire to be honest. That to me sounds like an ideal, like that's the way it should be. But I can think of examples where it really hasn't been that way. and, and in spite of what appears to be a very profound degree of awakening, there's still dishonesty and deception. Well, I think that comes with people wanting to create an identity out of being seen as something, 
as a spiritual teacher. You can lock yourself in place. I think there's a danger with, with coming out as being a spiritual teacher. Particularly that, if you've grown up in a culture which contains none of the elements that you end up confronting when you come to a different culture, as, as has often happened with yeah. Indian teachers coming to the West. Yeah. And so awakeness is a live and breathing thing. It needs to be refreshed in every moment. And so if we're boxing ourselves in with beliefs of how we're supposed to act and be and look to others, then we're not allowing that alive and freshness to be taking place within ourselves. So I'd much rather be myself and be my authentic self and, and just know that that is, to me, that's much more important than being seen as anything in particular. I totally back you up there. I totally agree yeah. with that. I think humility is is absolutely central to embodiment. And yeah, if, if there isn't that honesty of telling the truth to oneself in what is here, in what is being experienced as one's own direct experience, if that's not met without censorship, then there's still a sense of self-invested in something. <laughs> there's still a sense of self invested in, as you say, Susanna, being seen as something. And that's one of the very subtle but very powerful pitfalls of being a so-called spiritual teacher, or being anything <laughs> for that matter. In the capacity to meet everything, what is met in that can be shame. And shame is one of the things that we really, really don't want to face. Mm. Shame's quite indefinable really when you when you look at it it's like what what is it what exactly is it you know this this sense of not being right the sense of being exposed the sense of being vulnerable it's a vulnerability i guess vulnerability and humility go together our capacity to be vulnerable means that everything you know everything the good the bad and the ugly everything is is revealed and that is really the core of embodiment Embodiment happens naturally as a byproduct of, of that, as a byproduct of being open, vulnerable to what is really here, even if it appears to be really distasteful and ugly. You're saying like it's a, humility is kind of a standing in the truth, a standing yeah. in authentic, uh, authenticity. Standing. Yeah. It's interesting because Teresa of Avila says this is humility is truth. Oh, okay, he, I, he just said, Teresa of Avila said, humility is truth. Which is what they're saying. Which is what you guys are saying, yeah. I'll add one thing to that. This is, is such a lovely question, and it's so important. And it's actually, it's complex in a certain way, because if you're lucky enough, there's a song, The Blind Boys of Alabama, sooner or later, God will cut you down, right? <laughs> sooner or later, God will cut you down. If you're lucky enough in your life, you've been cut down and cut down, cut down every time that you inflate, that you inflate. The people that are allowed to inflate indefinitely, I think are the ones that you're talking about, or inflate like a tire that gets a bubble, you know, out of one side like that. So in that area, they're just totally distorted, right? Mm. From my life, and I don't know about the rest of you up here, but every time, every single time, I've inflated, cut in half. I feel the intensity, the visceral intensity of that as I'm talking about it, but man, I feel the blessing of that. Man, I feel the total gratitude for that. That's my experience too. <laughs> yeah. 
and then beaten yeah. into submission. And, and it's such a blessing. It's such, <laughs> such a, a blessing. And then you just don't touch the fire. You know, you don't want the fire. You don't. You, you know, you don't go there as much. Maybe if you're lucky. We learn. Yeah, you still do maybe, but you, you still. Oh, wait a minute! I sense that's hot. That feels hot over there. I'm not going there. You know. That's one of the good things is that we learn through the pain. Yeah, so our pain. Teach us. Beautiful, because yeah, what you're saying, our pain is our friend. Our pain is our teacher, one of our greatest teachers. Well, thank you. Hope this has been useful for people. I guess it has been, or you wouldn't have stuck around. Let me just conclude by, since this will be on BatCap, by saying that this is another in a continuing series of interviews and panel discussions that are on batgap.com. We're well into the 250 range now. So if you're new to this, go to B-A-T-G-A-P, batgap.com, and explore. There's a past interviews menu item with a bunch of different categories under it. There is a discussion group or forum, and each little episode has its own section in that forum. You'll see a link to it on the page for this conversation. There's an audio podcast with a link to that on every, uh, every page. Uh, there's a donate button. There's a place to be notified by email each time a new interview or discussion is posted. So thank you for listening or watching, and I'll be, probably be doing a few more things while I'm out here at the conference. Thanks, Rick.